This week on No Coast Cinema, we talked to Professor Joseph Flynn about the rise in diverse films such as Crazy Rich Asians and Black Klansmen, as well as the new popular film category at the Oscar. What does that mean for the Oscars, and are people actually going to pay attention? Mm. Plus, we hear from our good friend Luke Taylor about his new film that he's working on and how he's raising some funds to make it happen. Let's roll sound. Reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, that she wouldn't even harm a fly. All right, you guys are listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we're very excited to be back with you for another great week of Chicago Film Talk. Connor, um, hmm. one of our favorite dead horses to beat uh-huh. is... Let's wheel the, that out here really quick. <laughs> Get out the horse. Okay, there he is. Uh, one of our favorite dead horses to beat is the much beleaguered uh, film... Um, all you can eat subscription. Yes, it's a buffet. It's a buffet style, country buffet style. Yeah, uh, it's offering. The, it's the golden corral of theaters. <laughs> yeah, uh, movie pass, the yeah. magical little card that gets you into one movie every day, or at least you used to. Mm. And it has been just tanking. It, they had to slash their offerings. Now they're uh, they're they're boosting their price up for their subscription. Right, one it's one. Yeah. They uh, <clears throat> went from only offering they went from offering unlimited movies that you could see any amount of time during the week. They are now limiting it to I believe three a week. Right? Yeah, something something to that effect. They're go they're they're just rolling back on pretty much every one of their promises. And then they're also only offering you the option to see two movies, and it's Mission Impossible or like fucking Infinity War. Or it's so like ridiculous. That. Yeah, yeah. But, and they weren't even offering Mission Impossible, and that's already been out for a couple of weeks. So now people are going find like if they were waiting for their movie pass, they're seeing this movie like I don't know two weeks later now. Which I can understand as a cost-cutting measure. You can't see it in the first, you know, week sort of thing. But it's really been pissing people off. Um, and you what, know. What, what I think feel like their strategy was, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch before, and we were just sort of shocked that they were doing it. And I think that that kind of just like they're hemorrhaging money, and that's very transparent now, right, with the loan that, they, that their parent company had to take out and everything. Yeah, it's but very obvious. What I think we want to talk about today is how something like that, what they were doing is kind of just shocking the industry. There were sh- it was a shock to... Uh, you know, film exhibition sites, mm-hmm. regular theaters, even big ones like AMC or Regal, they kind of had to, it kind of sent them reeling a little bit. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it's the, uh, it's the thing that was best about MoviePass, but also what ultimately brought it down. Right. Um, there's a really interesting piece in IndieWire written by David Ehrlich. Many people know David. He's a very prominent film writer. Um, and it's titled Movie Pass reminded us how much people love going to the movies. And I really like this piece because it gets down to this core idea that Movie Pass was actually doing something pretty noble and reminding us something that we may have forgotten about when it comes to going to the movies. Um, 
when you have a startup like MoviePass, or maybe it's not a startup's not the word, but when you have a company like MoviePass, it's all everybody always talks about disruption, and that's right. the argument that um, Mr. Ehrlich makes in this is that everything's about disruption. Um, it's not really about doing something sustainable. It's about having a radical idea, and it is, you know, commendable for MoviePass to try and do something like that. They took a cert the. They took a service that cost like $50 a month and made it accessible to literally everyone. Yeah. Like who, I mean, and not literally, but, um, a much wider swath of people, like people can afford $10 a month. Lots of people can do that and go see that many movies. Like it's, it's unbelievable that that even came into somebody's head as an idea. And it takes an aggressive and enterprising mind to take a look at a pool recognize that it's stagnant and then make a splash in it you know i mean something like that where the the cinemas have been open for like a century yeah so seeing something like that and then just offering something that had never one never been done before and two it's such a price where literally anyone in the entire country could take advantage of it that like you said it's a commendable effort but to say that we are surprised at the outcome, no, no, which is which is too bad. Exactly. Um, to yeah. to hone in on that shock you were talking about, that shock factor. Um, David Ehrlich writes, as it turns out, audiences weren't staying home from the theaters because they didn't want to go to the movies. They were staying home because they didn't want to take out a second mortgage on their house <laughs> just to afford a matinee's afford a matinee screening of horrible bosses. Yeah. And right. you know, obviously hyperbole, but there's something to that. As you go to the movies, it really you're shelling out a lot because yeah. you know, you want to get snacks and stuff and you want to uh you know, do the premium experience and everything like that. Exactly. And that's what it that's what they offer, right? Cuz yeah. it's expensive. But and that they, was what movie capacity circumvented. Right. And it made it democratized a bit and reminded people how much they love the theater going experience. But let's not pretend that movie pass movie pass has kind of been painted in this narrative now as like the company that totally like Icarus flew too close to the sun here. Yeah, exactly. They totally, their ambitions were way too high. They they were just like, how can they beat that $9 average? I don't know in what universe that was realistically going to happen. No. And that they were going to keep it up till 2019 when their company supposedly miraculously became profitable. Like the CEO said, I don't, I I don't, I don't think that was ever going to happen. That was just way too ambitious, but let's not pretend that, um, uh, ambition is a bad thing. Yeah, ambition is a bad thing. Or that movie pass was cheapening the experience of going to the movies necessarily. I think there's an argument that um, since people were paying so much less, they were just like, oh, well, going to the movies is not that big a deal. It's, you know, you're cheapening the experience because people don't have to pay a premium for it and it doesn't feel like a special thing if you wanted to go to a cubs game and all of a sudden your ticket prices got slashed by like a hundred percent and you got you? to go to like several <laughs> games a week you know yeah would you be like you know it's just not the it doesn't same cheapen the experience it's great because now you can go to more games exactly you can enjoy more games what's really cheapening the experience and uh more people should be looking and pointing the finger at companies like amc is uh, the many different ways that they are completely fucking up their own like business. They're right. fucking up going to the theater. Um, I, man- I actually found uh, a bit of an older article that I had not seen. I can't believe how I missed this. But it was from back in last year, late last year, um, a Twitter user noticed that they went to five different AMC movies. 
and they noticed that the masking was wrong. Like, so for those of you who don't know what masking is in a theater, it's when, you know, you go to a theater, a lot of them have curtains on the side right. or something that moves down mm-hmm. to like fit the, fit the actual projection. Right. AMC was literally installing screens without masking. So most movies are projected in two basic formats, either full or scope. And those two have different, the way it projects onto the screen is slightly different. So if you don't have masking, you, um, you have a bunch of extra space. Yeah. You have like, you have like extra gray bars and we're not talking about like watching something in widescreen at home where it's, that's how it's supposed to be projected. It looks, it's very obvious that there's this extra screen real estate. So this guy saw five different AMC movies and then complained to AMC. It was just like, hey, your masking was wrong in five different movies. What's the deal? And they were just like, oh, yeah, we've just started installing uh, uh, theaters without masking uh, because, you know, the projectors shoot clean digital lines. So uh, sorry you didn't enjoy the experience. Fair enough. Save on curtain costs. Makes sense. Christ's sake. Like, so that that kind of defeats the purpose of going to the movie. If you're not going to get the full cinematic experience, then what the hell? What are we even talking about? Now, I will say AMC also does things like Dolby Cinema, which is like, that's something that would get me to go to a theater is be like, right. you're going to see it in ultra, you know, in a ultra high definition format. You're going to get Dolby Atmos surround sound. And it's going to be in the nice recliners and everything like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll pay top dollar for that because at least I'm getting an experience and they're trying. Right. So if they do more of that instead of uh, screwing up and basically not projecting the film correctly, which if I were in the part of the film studio, I would go after him for it. I would be like, you got to be kidding me. You're not projecting this movie correctly. Yeah. In a day and age when Christopher Nolan literally sends every movie theater correct like projection. Really? Like notes. Yeah. <laughs> When you when they had Dunkirk, he was just like, yeah, it has to be projected a certain way. That's really interesting. I did not know that. Well, I mean, it's the same issue that people had with like HBO and stuff um, that they weren't, you know, formatting the films correctly for it. But back to MoviePass. Mm-hmm. I really like this article. Really suggest that people seek it out. Um, MoviePass reminded us how much people love going to the movies. People want to go to the movies. They just don't want to get completely cut off at the knee. Right. Price wise. When they want to take their family to go see a movie. And that is the sentiment that MoviePass keyed in on spectacularly. Mm-hmm. So a little overly ambitiously. Yeah. Maybe someday. Maybe yeah. someday. Um, you tried MoviePass. And I think you were... Close? You were close. I mean, and we cri- we've criticized MoviePass. We've said the economics were never there. There was That was right. a lofty goal. But we do have to put credit where credit is due and um, congratulate them on at least giving... Doing something different to get people into movie theaters and hopefully, um, hopefully setting setting a new back. standard. Yeah, yeah, if they can come back. Yeah, uh, we're going to switch gears here in a moment. Going to be talking to uh, assistant professor Joseph Flynn from Northern Illinois University, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a couple new releases: Black Klansman and Crazy Rich Asians, and how those movies are diversifying Hollywood and maybe. What's in the what's in the near future? He studies this sort of stuff all the time, so stick around. We'll be right back.
right, and we're back on No Coast Cinema, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. Uh, we're so lucky to be joined by NIU associate professor Joseph Flynn. Uh, he's a guy that keeps a close eye on racial and social justice issues in the worlds of education, politics, media, and pop culture, which is really what we want to hone in on today. And uh, Surprise, we, surprise. Yeah, especially <laughs> with uh, the rise of media being, I mean, media has always been important, but... I don't know. We're seeing a lot of discussion about what our media looks like, who it's representing, right. who has control over it, um, and how we can get uh, more diverse voices, better stories at the end of the day, which is represented through those diverse voice voices. Um, many people have noticed that we've seen a lot of really diverse movies come out recently. And diverse insofar as they uh, focus on a particular voice. This weekend we had uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which has been doing gangbusters at the box office. It is already number one this weekend. It's made about half its budget back, $16 million on a $30 million budget. And really, we only expected to do even better. Uh, Spike Lee's Black Klansman also doing fantastic at the box office and also critically acclaimed. Yep. Um, I believe he won a, a special award at Cannes for that film. Uh, Black Panther, one of the highest grossing, if not the highest grossing film of the year and made a huge splash in the culture, both uh, on the screen and off. So right now we're going to bring in uh, Joe t- into the conversation to talk about these sorts of things. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So let's start off with um, Crazy Rich Asians, which was a movie that was much talked about. It seems like a very typical romantic comedy insofar as it's based on a best-selling book. It's got some notable actors. You've got Constance Wu from Fresh Off the Boat. And uh, it looks like, you know, something standard. But can you talk a little bit about the significance of having an American-made film that has an entirely Asian cast. Uh, yeah. So, as I understand, the last time we saw a film made in the United States uh, featuring um, an all-Asian cast was about 25 years ago with The Joy Luck Club, which, of course, was also based on uh, a great novel by Amy Tan. So, 25 years of not seeing a film that features um, Asian Americans in in complex roles um, that don't uh, immediately slip in, uh, slip in the stereotype is a very, very rare thing. And um, I know we make a lot of hay, for example, about the representation of African Americans, um, and even to, but to a lesser degree, we talk uh, seriously about the representation of Asian Americans, Latinos, um, as well as indigenous Americans as well. And so to see a film like this um, with really wonderful source material um, and executed brilliantly, it's a really fun film to watch. Um, And it's a complex film to watch as well is just is a real shock to the Hollywood system and a much needed uh, jolt. Well, and a jolt is really what we need in this sort of uh, climate. I mean, we are looking at Hollywood post a lot of big things, um, post Oscars So White, post Me Too. Um, do you think that we're starting to see the up t- the uptrend, I guess, uh, in terms of uh, let's look at it as a bell curve of sorts? Are we going to see a lot more stories like Crazy Rich Asians that are 
diverse and represent very specific cultural voices, but still made in that kind of classical Hollywood style of this is, I mean, people go to see this movie. It's a romantic comedy. It's got all the beats and uh, it's very recognizable. You know, is that, is that where we're going to be at? We're going to see much more diverse versions of Hollywood standards. Uh, That's my hope. Um, and 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 it's not, I don't think it's necessarily just the the standards, um, the standard Hollywood fare, um, you know, retrofitted with you know a more diverse cast, but also the approach to the stories. I think are also interesting because uh, Crazy Rich Asians is definitely um, a rom com from you know opening credits to end credits. But at the same time, it does a really wonderful job at helping you understand the complexity of Asian uh, and Asian-American culture, um, while also constantly offering, you know, uh, for lack of better terms right now, an outsider's critique of American culture. And as I was watching the film, I was really uh, struck by that because I was wondering, you know, like, are some you know white folks going to be turned off by some of the comments that are made about American culture? But I think it's an important thing to happen because um, we have a tendency as Americans to not recognize that other people on the planet are watching us and that our culture matters and the actions um, and statements, they all matter because we are being watched and critiqued. And we as a nation should be understanding of that. So I think definitely in the near future, I think we'll see more stories um, written, uh, produced, directed by uh, non-white artists. Um, And hopefully that continues to be bankable and, you know, can continue to spread that trend. And personally, as a viewer uh, with Crazy Rich Asians, especially, I feel like some like you mentioned, it is a rom-com, but there's definitely some subversion in the film. There's definitely a feminist message at the heart of it. And it's subverting that classic rom-com tale that people that are going into the theater to see it might be expecting and they'll be coming out with. A little bit more it's more like a tale of female empowerment at the end and and all of that and person and from just a business strategy perspective i just don't see how the appeal of diversity in film is not there i mean it's borne out in the financials right black panther like you were saying that's one of the most that's like the biggest year, movie of the year yeah even something like girls mm-hmm. trip uh, was a office. massive massive yeah, success so why do you th- i mean I feel like I might be preaching to the choir stating the obvious here, but what is it about diverse stories that bring in people to the theaters? Cause they're doing a lot better than, you know, Marky Mark shooting up another street in mile 22. We're done with that. Why, why does that bring in the dollars? Well, number one, of course, the pop, our population demographics are changing uh, very rapidly. So we're starting to see, um, larger um, markets of non-white film uh, film viewers. Um, also, Hollywood's kind of gotten boring, right. you know, as, as you just pointed out, with um, the standard popcorn, you know, Michael Bay sort of fare. <laughs> you know, it, we, we've seen those stories before. I mean, Hollywood's gotten so, for lack of better terms, lazy that they're recycling vehicles from the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s now. And it's like, 
come on, another remake of a film that didn't need to be remade in the first place. And so I think, you know, having, um, you know, these diverse um, artists coming out saying new things and telling more interesting stories is really important. But I am cautious because it seems to me that in the history, even in recent history, I remember um, as an example when – Oh, there's a film that came out right at the same time as uh, the second installment of Thor came out. Um, uh, Best Man. Best Man Holiday. Oh, the Best Man Holiday, Holiday, yeah. Yeah, and everybody was just surprised that it almost um, did better in its opening weekend than Thor did. And a lot of people um, in the African-American community were saying, when African-American films come out, we always come out and support those films. Sure. And those films do make money because they're t- typically made on a shoestring budget and they make money hand over fist, make a huge profit for the, um, for the uh, studio. But then all of a sudden there's this retrenchment and a questioning as to whether or not that can happen again, even though it happened, has happened again and again and again over time. So, and that's why I'm, I'm still kind of cautious uh, about the future of diverse filmmakers in Hollywood because, yeah, money has been made all along the way, but that doesn't necessarily always convert into the cementing of a trend or a one-off. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're seeing a new stage, especially with the quality of films that have been coming out um, with Steve McQueen's work and Jordan Peele's work. Um, of course, uh, I'm sure we'll get into this in a moment, but um, Spike Lee's comeback really strong with Black Klansman. You have, um, of course, Crazy Rich, A- Crazy Rich Asians and you know many other films. And I'm hoping to see the same kind of trend happen for um, the Latino community as well because they are a sizable portion of the film-going community and those stories ought to be told as well too. So we definitely have a much wider palette of new stories to tell when you bring in diverse filmmakers and I think that that can be great for the industry, great for the art, and great for uh, American culture in general. Absolutely. Well, let's let's hop into Spike Lee and Black Klansman because this is definitely a movie that um, feels very both, you know, it's very classic in its in the way that it's a period piece, but also it's incredibly of our time right now. And uh, in natural Spike Lee fashion, he doesn't really pull any punches. I mean, even by virtue of calling it Black Klansman, uh, I myself work in a in a small movie theater, and it's kind of interesting to see people's trepidation to actually say the title of the movie. And, uh, you know, it's... I mean, it's good in a sense. You know, you want people to be thinking about what they're going to see. They're like, okay, I'm about to see a movie that's going right. to challenge some things. But um, I've never seen Spike Lee as being... He's not, and it's, it, I don't feel like it's a self-serious movie. He's just like, this is just how it is. This is how I'm going to tell my story. This is my perspective, and uh, you know, people seem to be really enjoying it. Have you seen Black Klansman? Uh, actually, I saw it last night. Okay, well, there <laughs> we go. It's fresh. And I, I was. Uh, it's a brilliant film, and I was really happy because I've always been a really big fan of Spike Lee, and um, ever since she's got to have it do the right thing, Malcolm X, uh, 25th Hour. He's consistently made great films, and he's had, you know, uh, the occasional miss here and there, movies like Girl 6. Um, 
But with that being said, this is a total return to form for Spike. And uh, the beginning of the film, uh, there's a tagline that says that this is, you know, the events of the film really did happen. This is the real deal. And uh, it's really important that he puts that out there because some of the things that happen in the film, you're just so shocked by that people were able to, to pull this off. Um, uh, you know, an, an African-American um, police officer, you know, going undercover, talking to the Ku Klux Klan, including David Duke, on the phone while having a white Jewish police officer represent him. Mm-hmm in face-to-face meetings. You know, the, the premise is so insane that it has to be real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, what the story is one thing, and on the other hand, the quality of the filmmaking just as a, as a visual document is just, is just a gorgeous piece of work. I enjoyed every single last frame of this film. And I, it's one of those films that I think everybody needs to see. And the way that Spike connects um, the story about infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan in the 70s and fast forwards it uh, near the end to the rise of the Ku Klux Klan over the last few years, it's it's chilling. And I don't think there's really any way you can watch the film and walk out of the theater and just kind of shrug the film off. It's It definitely leaves you with a lot to think about. Well, it feels so interesting that this should come out and get its wide release now. I feel like just yesterday we were talking about Sorry to Bother You, which was a film that um, totally shook me out of a out of a film malaise really because i was watching you know i felt like i was just watching the same stuff over and over again right. and then i get something like boots riley behind uh something to, uh, sorry sorry to bother you and it was just something fierce um and blind spotting as well blind spotting yeah one that um i hope more people see i haven't seen that what is that blind spotting uh joe would you like to give him a crash course <laughs> uh i haven't actually seen it is it new? But I know about it, so um, it's, uh, I don't really want to go sure. too far into it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, I will like say, <laughs> I'm just surprised uh, I haven't heard of it. No, it's uh, it's it's new. Has to deal. I mean, it's an uh, a film that deals with police brutality. Um, oh, yeah. okay. with a black man at the at the center of it. He's the protagonist. We're seeing it through his lens. Okay. Um, but I mean, we're we're seeing more and more movies that are taking. Um, that diverse and as we've been talking about diverse perspectives and uh very specific perspectives i know that at northern illinois university one of the uh classes that you teach is african americans in film is that correct yes i i do teach a class called that Um, (laughs) and we look at the history as um going all the way back to birth of a nation um, and the ways in which African Americans were represented in that film, mm-hmm. um, alongside uh, Within Our Gates, um, which is a film by the great African American filmmaker Oscar Micheaux, uh, as a rebuttal to uh, Birth of a Nation. And then we just go through um, the film history of African Americans. And last semester we ended with Get Out. No, we ended with Moonlight. Right. And so I try to get them, I try to get my students to you know, really appreciate the full scope of the history and how African-American film for a lot of its history has been a direct response or critique on racism 
and a struggle for, you know, proper and appropriate and accurate representation of who black folks are, which, you know, tying it into Crazy Rich Asians, a part of what's really great about the film is that you see such a diverse representation of Asian Americans and Asians, and you really get a chance to get inside the um, the politic, the cultural politics that um, rage within that community. Um, and, and it was really interesting because you could see differentiations among these characters through things like um, their accent. So some of the characters spoke with American accents, some spoke with British accents, some spoke with Chinese accents. Mm-hmm. You know, so just that kind of, um, those kinds of uh, devices within the storyline and the construction of the characters is really, really important because traditionally, especially with Asians, like Asian males are tr- traditionally represented as martial artists or, you know, assassins. Um, you know, really compliant or, you know, the one image that's coming to my head is Mickey Rooney in um, Breakfast at Tiffany. Oh, God. Um, these characters that are totally lampooned, right? Yeah. Um, and those are clearly, you know, self-serving constructions. But here you see a much, much broader array of representations. Um, so, for example, there's a scene in Crazy Rich Asians in which um, one of the main female characters, Astrid, gives her husband a, a watch. And this, their story is a little bit complicated, and, I, and I'll leave that for listeners to go see the film. But when she gives him this watch, his reaction you know, is so interesting because it's rare that you see Asian American males showing emotion mm-hmm. in film. And that's an important thing to see because it's definitely a way of humanizing folks. And, and when I'm teaching my course on African Americans in film, those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to get my students to recognize that this is a struggle for how we are represented because the more accurately we're represented as groups and communities, the more we're humanized and the more empowered we become through that, through those actions. Yeah. Those complex portrayals are, are integral. You don't want it to just be an ambassador from a culture. Like you said, Joe, about how they're usually just very self-serious, usually assassins or something like that. You don't want them to be, these movies are showing audiences, wide audiences that it doesn't need to just be an ambassador of a culture like Japan or China. It can be, uh, contributors to a shared culture and like you yeah exactly just the humanization is such an important thing and we're seeing that in all of these movies yeah and i think that's something that is a part of the zeitgeist of course but i also as i said earlier i think it's really important for us as a society and recognizing the humanity that exists the humanity and universality that exist in all of these different among all of these, among and across all of these different groups. Um, I, I find Crazy Rich Asians to be interesting because it's a rom-com, right? Mm-hmm. And how much more universal can you get? You know, I, we I all fall in can. love. We all have problems with our family, accepting uh-huh. our, you know, our partners. And we have these negotiations with family, relationships with your mother, relationship with your parents, relationships with your friends. And all these things play out in Crazy Rich Asians. 
in a really wonderful and oftentimes really humorous way. Aquafina is amazing, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, she's a star on the rise. Between Ocean's Eight and this, I don't, I don't not see her becoming uh, a per, you know a huge star in her own right. And let's um, not forget her fantastic appearance on that Deerhoof track on Mountain Moves. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and even you know, Crazy Rich Asians incorporates uh, literal Asian cinema royalty, Michelle Yeoh. Oh yeah, who who is a martial arts legend broke barriers Crouching for women. Tiger. Yeah, uh, broke barriers for women in the martial arts genre. So I feel like Crazy Rich Asians is just this great confluence of so many things that it respects and uh, you know illuminates and pays homage to. It's um, I mean, it deserves all the praise that it's getting. Honestly, right. I'm I'm really exciting, or it's it is really exciting, and I'm really excited to see what comes next. Um, um, I do want to jump one last thing I want to bring up, um, mm-hmm. is the popular film category at the Oscars. This uh. has been a point of contention for, uh, a lot of people. Some see it as an opportunity for, you know, uh, more populist, I suppose, films to get a, you know, uh, standing ovation on the, uh, stage at the Oscars. Some see it as kind of a consolation prize for movies that are considered too genre or, you know, too not, not enlightened enough to receive the best picture. Um, I'm, kind of somewhere in between because I would love to see more movies that are actually popular, you know, win more Oscars other than maybe a few technical ones here or there for your odd star Wars movie or whatever. However, I do understand why it might be seen as a little demeaning that they have to give a separate Oscar just so something like black Panther can win an Oscar uh, for best picture as it were. I want to get your thoughts on that, Joe. I don't buy it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I, I would love for I would love for Black Panther to win as many Oscars as it possibly can, but I don't know the creation of an entirely new category. Um, it, you know, it, there's there's a, it just kind of smacks of a certain cynicism, and yes. I'm 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 kind of a purist because I always first and foremost foreground film as being an art form right and 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 we can always argue all day of course about you know award shows and you know these organizations you know bestowing these honors and you know the um elitism that's embedded in all that but if it exists and it exists to you know highlight the best of the best and you know advances in the in the art of film and you know um the the Oscars have kind of always, you know, allowed itself to move with the times. Um, that's all great, but, you know, I don't know. It seems rather cheap, in my opinion, even though I think um, popular films are really important. You know, I mean, it kind of, it kind of makes me feel like sooner or later Michael Bay is going to get an Oscar okay. for um, Transformers 8, you know, <laughs> right. and just because it made a lot of money and it was, you know, fun for people. But I think that film has to be about much more than that. Um, you know, I, I think back to a film like um, 12 Years a Slave, as an example, and or, or a film like Moonlight, you know, and, and either one of those films made a lot of money, but the the impact those films had 
um, both uh, on the art form as well as culturally can are, is just completely un, indeni- undeniable. And um, and it's I think it's kind of not necessarily fair to say that blockbusters don't win Oscars. Really well made blockbusters win Oscars, i.e., Titanic. There you go. You know, or a. Um, I was thinking about the film Crash. Made a lot of money um, on the back end, and you know those were uh, Best Picture Oscars. Um, so I, I don't think that one is necessarily mutually exclusive of the other. I think it really comes down to how well crafted was this film, how powerful was this film, and even if someone didn't see it, is this um, a statement that's worthy of saying, yeah, out of everything that came out this year, this just stands head and shoulders above everyone else, and creating a, a new category for you know to appease the pop sensibility. I, don't, I just don't think that's a really good direction to go. And hey, man, I'm all for giving an Oscar to Andy Serkis's motion capture performance of a water bear yeah. spiraling through the vacuum of space. Like, give that man an Oscar. Give that man a <laughs> bundle of them. But I, I read this article about how ABC uh, renewed its contract to broadcast the Oscars for the next like ten years. Right, the next, the foreseeable future. Right. Um, and obviously ABC is owned by Disney, and the reason that they added this most popular film category was at the behest of ABC's continued pressures to add a best blockbuster category to the Academy. And the Academy was like, no, no, fuck you, no, we're not doing it. And then they are like, and then ABC was like, best popular film? And they are like, okay, that's kind of how I view, that's kind of how I view it. And works them down it's so it's to talk about the fucking cheapening of the film like of the film going not film going experience but the film award you know the oscar is the most prestigious award and it's the most watched and to add that just feels like like you said tom it's just a consolation so that disney now that they own now that they are a monopoly anti-monopolization laws where you at yeah (laughs) now they're just gonna get a fucking oscar every year because they're throwing out over a, like two billion dollars a year to make like three blockbusters every yeah. fucking year. It's, yeah, it's terrible. It does, and it like it completely denies um, the public that range of choices in film and stories that we've been talking about the whole uh, this whole um, conversation. So, and that's the in that regard alone let the film stand as its own document and let the chips fall where they may, you know, run a more aggressive uh, advertising or marketing campaign. Um, Cause you know, this is all negotiated anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, to add a new category, it's, it's clearly about making money and trying to get more people to sit and watch this three hour long mammoth telecast. Right. Right. It's all about the money at the end of the day. Uh, Associate Professor Joseph Flynn from Northern Illinois University. Is there anywhere that we can uh, keep up with you on social media, get some of your thoughts on all these great topics? Um, I do have a Facebook page. Um, Search Joseph Flynn, uh, PhD, or just Joseph Flynn. Um, I am also on Twitter at J.E. Flynn. And I also uh, co-host my own podcast. Hey, yeah, <laughs> called really? Mental Illness in Pop Culture. Uh, the uh, um, the the gang will be really appreciative of the plug. Um, so yeah, I'm around. Where can and we find your book? Also, 
check Amazon.com. Yeah, right. uh, and that one's place. and that one's called White Fatigue: Rethinking Resistance for Social Justice. And uh, I think we'll have to talk about that that idea in context of film uh, in the near future because yeah. I think this is a continuing conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Joe, for joining us on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast. All right, we'll be back in just a minute with Luke Taylor of BBF Productions here to talk a little bit about his new uh, project, his new feature film coming up, so stick around. Welcome back, NoCo Cinema, here on WGM Plus. And as uh, always, we're talking film and talking. filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, thank you again to Joe Flynn for talking movies with us. It's always good to get that academic perspective. Very knowledgeable guy. Um, but we want to hop over to one of our frequent guests, good friend of the show, Mr. Luke Taylor, uh, one half of BBF Productions, host of the Bad Movie Brunch podcast, and uh, now, and he's also a filmmaker mm-hmm. in his own right, director. He uh, recently released a short on YouTube, is Close. Close. Um, lots of fun. Wonderful. Short little comedy. And now he's shooting for the big leagues. He's <laughs> going full, for it. Full length feature. <laughs> Uh, the feature is called Break. <laughs> no, you're not talking yet. We're not, we haven't talk yet. Hi, guys. Just started introducing you. <laughs> we're in part two of the introduction. Um, What's up? So, hey. <laughs> how are you? Uh, so, he's got a new feature that he's going to be working on very soon called Break, uh, also by BBF Productions, and it is a coming of age story, uh, something that Luke, you know, really knows nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> he is five years old. He doesn't know anything about being coming of age, but uh, currently in the fundraising process, so we figured we'd bring him on and talk to him a little about it, and he also brought a guest with him. Uh, Luke, welcome back to the show. Thanks, guys. And uh, Cheers to the beers. <laughs> full throttle mm. to the bottle. Cheers beers. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, I did also bring a guest. Uh, my star of my film, uh, Arif Polsky, is here. Arif, so, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. So Thank glad you. you could make it. Um, so let's talk about this feature. Let's talk about Break. What's the what is the elevator pitch? So uh, the quick pitch is uh, Break is a love story set in the span of a summer uh, coming of age sort of tale. It serves a, uh, as a snapshot of a very specific uh, time and place in life that I think is universally relatable to us all. Um, it's, it's, it takes place between, you know, the summer after graduating high school where you're kind of supposed to be an adult, but you're fucking 18 years old. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and my character has to go back uh, from the city to his old hometown in rural Illinois. Um, and he meets up with some of his old pals, uh, a, a nice lady friend, uh, oh. Marley portrayed by Taylor Shepard, my love of my life. Uh, and, um, she works at the roller rink. These guys uh, spend their time cruising back roads, hanging out at the roller rink, and uh, catching a nice buzzer or two. Mm. Uh, basically, a nice buzzard too. A, a nice buzzard too. Really? No, there's a lot of there's a lot of buzzes, buzzards, uh, just all the things you look for in a movie uh, in terms of the coming of age genre. But I liked uh, my big whole big thing was uh, I wanted to explore a part of. Um, 
my life and a part of uh, Illinois, and I think maybe the entire country, that is uh, sorely underexplored in terms of uh, cinema. Uh, I come from a town that's like 15,000 people. It's, I mean, that sound, even that number sounds too high because it doesn't feel that big. Right. And like, and I'm surrounded by towns that like don't even have like stoplights. You know what I mean? Uh, so I come from the heart of Illinois where life in comparison to the bustling city or high school in film or this big sort of larger than life uh, idea of, you know, the sort of 90210 style uh, right. of high schoolers being depicted with, you know, High, high drama and high like you know parties and like all this crazy shit that's a lot more adult uh than is really happening you know in my town the only thing you had to do was you know hang out in parking lots or in some dude's basement or stuffy garage and drink beer that you were lucky enough to have a 21 year old buy you <laughs> and stuff you know what i mean so um I've sort of been living my entire life to make this movie, and it's really going to be the culmination of uh, everything I've done so far. To peek at 25 is going to be interesting, uh, but uh, (laughs) I'm happy to peek at all, you know? Hey, it's not a peek, man. It's a snapshot. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a Snapchat. Uh, oh right! Oh, because yeah. it's it's updated. It's not a period yeah. piece. No, no. Uh-huh. I wish it was. No, it's set. Uh, it's set present day. Uh, that being said, I don't. I'm not going to do the whole like. I feel like a lot of times kids and teens are depicted in this sort of uh, social media frenzy where like they're obsessed with their phones and have screen addictions and yada yada. Mm-hmm. This movie uh, is not that. I think it's a much more wholesome take. Uh, very. Um, very in-depth character study, very uh, character-driven flick where uh, we'll get to explore ideas about life, love, uh, death, all in the span of a summer. The uh, the idea is, you know, summer is the best time of our lives. Uh, it can be. And especially in a, in, a, in a time where you're still coming of age, guys, mm. uh, it can really, you know, be a, a truly, truly transcendental experience for us all. And uh, my goal and hope is to depict a sort of uh, love story and a select a set of characters that stand out and bring something fresh and original to a genre that I think is uh, well tread in its old tropes. I want to mm-hmm. break the mold a bit. Well, one of the, I know one of the uh, production elements is that you're going to be shooting in both Chicago yeah. and in your hometown. Correct. Um, what's gonna what's that gonna be like for your shooting schedule because moving locations i mean it's not like um can't you're originally from canton correct yeah i'm from canton illinois and it's not like uh you know it's a world away but you have to move the entire production down to you know central illinois can you talk a little bit about making that decision and why you wanted to shoot it that way well it's really important uh to me for authenticity's sake to uh go back home where i'm from and uh highlight this town for what it is which uh is a wonderful place i think small towns get a bad rap a lot of the time uh from not only the people that don't live there but also from the people that do and i don't fully agree i i think that there are toxic things about small towns that uh can make it you know difficult and stuff and there's always but you know you're always going to find those clicks everywhere uh nobody has ever seen my town before especially on film except for the people that are from there and by and large the people that are from there either go far away or more often than not they just stay mm-hmm. and um 
where I'm from, it's not a place where you're told you can make a movie or you can go to film school or like this is possible. And uh, I didn't really know that until like almost grad school. I mean, even I went to a community college in Canton for my first two years of college. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Western for a couple of years where they had a film minor. Go, go Leathernecks. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know exactly what film school was until I was applying for it like before my college graduation mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't realize that it was even like college accredited I know it sounds so stupid but it's just it's not the things you grow up with like you grow up and like get a job you know we're be an accountant be a construction worker be a be a athlete but it's like never right. never does anybody say be an artist you yeah. know be a storyteller be a storyteller and so my uh, I just really would like to as a storyteller uh, let the whole world i guess selfishly i suppose let the whole world into what my experience has been and sort of be like this is my life depicted on screen i see lots of people that i relate to on film but never do i see people um that are me i don't see me i don't see my friends i don't see uh my thoughts and ideas on you know how things work in this crazy fucked up world we're in Mm -hmm. right now and uh, i think especially in such turbulent times as 2018 uh it was very therapeutic to go and write something that was really heartfelt and um exploring the uh simpler of uh, simpler aspects of life that in my opinion hold the most pristine beauty so let's break into the story a little bit here so we have arif let's break into the story yeah break yeah Arif, you're going to be the lead in it, and you had to work with Luke and the script and everything. How was it uh, interpreting the words that it clearly means a lot to him? And what are you bringing to uh, the character? And just, like, in general, kind of, I don't want to, no spoiler alerts or anything, but what can you tell us about the character that you're portraying? Well, uh, when I, Luke sent me a script about, what, a couple months ago? Yeah, a while, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I read it one morning at like 3 a.m. and I texted him the next day and I was like, did you write this with me in mind? And he was like, no, no, I didn't. So I guess that speaks to the uh, the qualities that are relatable with this character. I think it's very much about being lost as a person. Right. I think. And not really knowing it. Not, sure. knowing, not knowing your place, not knowing uh, how you fit, what to do uh, within the world you live in. Uh, and I think the character struggles with that both in Chicago and at home uh, in Canton. Um, and I think that's what it, on top of like coming of age, it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that, I think. In that in the, it's about uh, identity that has already been cracked. Some some people, they you grow up and it's just a, it's a, a gradual ascent. Right. Uh, but sometimes... Uh, for this character who's faced some measure of trauma, uh, how does that affect him? How does that set him back? How does he move forward from it? Uh, that's what I got from this character. Um, and also seeing things happen in his life in front of him, to him, for him, that he doesn't really quite understand why it's happening. Why is, for example, Marley, played by the wonderful Taylor Shepard, why is she bothering with him at all? Now that he's in town, why why does she pay him any attention? Uh, I th- there's so there's conflict in that. Why do people uh, attribute worth mm-hmm. to me, to my, to to this person, to this character? Well, and, I, oh. that's that that's that kind of darker side. I mean, sure. it's not. I, sure. I, no, it, I know it, you're not a dark but person, themes, but it gets into that. It gets a little bit of that toxicness for sure. I really like. Um, you mentioned trauma. Yeah. 
and I'm and that does excite me because I feel like uh, two things in my world that are you know undividable indivisible are trauma and my hometown mm-hmm. <laughs> right where does all trauma come from you yeah. know your hometown yeah um right now you're in the fundraising process so That's let's right. really quickly um get out the information so people can support this project sure also i didn't really answer your question before we're shooting two days in chicago which is like two days in up, chicago and then we're just moving everything to canton and we're going to be there for like uh september 12th to October 1st. Well, you're going to so, need to, that can't do yeah. attitude. And I'm going to make, and people are going to be like living in like my parents' fucking basement and shit. It's going to be, I mean, this is, cool. this is as indie film as it gets. And that's like, that's how we move into the whole uh, fundraising process of it is if you want to support like art, if you don't want to fucking go give your money to the 18th Mission Impossible movie, if you want to <laughs> see like, see like true performances and true stories by actual people, I mean, the best way to do it is to help support monetarily if you can uh independent film like we're striving to make uh this is my first feature uh at this point i've only written and directed short films i've also helped on marissa lessman's feature film uh phil but the most important thing to me is um and to me and marissa as a production company is yeah i bells and whistles are fine but i wrote a movie uh that doesn't need Ten million dollars. I I need uh, a few thousand, to, uh, and and our big goal is to pay the people working for us. Now I know there's a lot of performers and there's a lot of actors that want the credit and the, like they want to work for free. But the most important thing in the world to me is to make sure the people that are making my dreams come true. Brilliant actors like Arif, like Taylor Shepard, uh, Grant Whitaker, Sylvia Abelson, uh, everybody that's involved, um, Doug Oki. Uh, shout out he's going to be in the movie too <laughs> works at Spoon River College in Canton uh, nice. people like that I want to make sure that they get their they get paid for the hard work they're giving me or at least you have decent craft services I mean craft mm. services will be will be solid sponsored uh, by craft yeah sponsored Service. by craft yeah. <laughs> uh, but I want to make sure that they you know get their their fair due uh, because you know they're helping my dreams come true the least I can do is give them a little scratch and that's where uh, you people come in hopefully I do have a what go- do you mean you people you people as in you know cis white males like you Tom mm. no, the only people that are going to see the movie that. no uh, <laughs> um, uh, no I, I we, so we have a GoFundMe set up uh, you can go to GoFundMe uh, it's Break a Feature Film uh, organized by BBF Productions you can also find that on the BBF Productions Facebook uh, my Facebook Luke Taylor uh, it's been share it with, I've been sharing it around like uh, the plague um, hoping to get some money here and there. People so far have been very generous, made about 600 bucks so far, and uh, all, all the other money at this point, aside from the GoFundMe, is coming straight out of me and Marissa's pocket. So it's happening, but it could happen a lot easier uh, with your help. Any dollar or two that you could possibly spare will honestly uh, mean the world to me, to the people working on this movie, and the people that are honestly like committing time out of their life to make my stupid dreams come true all right well thank you so much luke and arif for coming in we really appreciate it uh connor why don't you yeah, take, take us take out of here oh thank you very much this has been no co cinema here on wgn plus we are your guide to cinema here in the city of chicago i am connor cornelius and i'm tom hush and i almost just said tom hush and you have a great day